excited for this holiday season. I hope that you guys are. I hope that you can feel the cheer in the air. I love this time of year, but I'll tell you, I'm sensitive to people that celebrate other things other than Christmas and and don't celebrate at all. I personally love Christmas time and am so into it. I'm like one of those people that watches Christmas movies in July because I just need a little, you know, Christmas infusion in the middle of the year. But I'll tell you, I am like this because you may not know this, but I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. So we did not celebrate Christmas. Um, We didn't celebrate birthdays. We didn't celebrate anything. So I understand what it's like to have everybody be excited about something or, you know, celebrating something that you're not. Um, I still liked it as a kid, although it didn't have as much meaning for me. I still liked the, um, you know, Christmas movies, although I didn't really watch that many. I don't, I think I watched like Rudolph for the first time when I was an adult. And I remember my adult friends, like, you know, being able to recite Rudolph and me being like, I haven't really seen this one. So, you know, I just, I, I kind of get it, but I also know that because of my childhood, it's made me be kind of a Christmas psycho. Like, um, I am so into it because I feel like I'm making up for lost time and I'm like, who wouldn't love gifts and who wouldn't love, um, coming together as a family and having the fire and wrapping the gifts and like uh, giving is one of my favorite things. I absolutely love, um, handing gifts out to friends and family at the holidays, but you know, I just like the cheer that goes up to it. I like the Christmas music. I think, you know, cleaning the house and doing some of these mundane tasks of everyday life is just more fun when you can do it in a cheery mood. So I don't know. I feel positive around this part of the year. Um, and I'm, I'm going to blame my over the top Christmasness on not celebrating for years as a kid. Um, but so however you spend this time, whether you enjoy it or whether you don't, or whether it's Christmas or whether it's Hanukkah or whether it's no celebrations at all, um, we are wrapping up the year of 2020. So there is something to be said for that. That's a huge accomplishment. I know that I set out this year with the intention to survive, and I feel like that was such a good intention to set. Um, we, we did a lot of surviving this year. So um, I'm really excited about this week's guest. We have Justin and Alexis on, and they actually wrote a book called Redefining Normal. So they were both in foster care. They met in college and now they're a couple and now they're married. So they they come on to talk about their book, Redefining Normal. And they take you along this journey of discovering normalcy and kind of how normalcy develops for, for us, right? I'm just talking about how normal for me was not celebrating anything, uh, not celebrating Christmas and all of that. So they talk about what their normalcy was and how they learned what the meaning of loved love was based upon their experiences um, in the child welfare system. And then they kind of walk through their whole journey of how that affected their life and how they met each other and then how they had to kind of go back through and do a lot of healing, a journey that they're still on. Uh, but they, they write about that 
that journey in this book called Redefining Normal. So I am going to let you guys hear from them. They're, they're incredible. Uh, great young couple. And then we will link to the book that you can get. All right, here we go. Here's Alexis and Justin. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you guys. Um, This is Alexis and Justin and they wrote the book Redefining Normal. They've actually written it, I believe this year and and released it this year, which is super cool. So um, I know that 2020 has been a really uh, exciting year for you too. Um, so I want to get into like your history and how you guys met and all of the, the meat of the interview, but what is your, what led you to write the book and what's your hope for it? So we actually decided to write the book. Um, it was more, of, I think it was last year. And uh, I had a bunch of people speak into me that I should write a book, but I didn't know, I didn't have any idea of what I was going to write about. And then Justin said, well, what is one thing that you talk about every day? You know, what is like the quickest thing that we can get out there? And I said, healthy relationships. I talk about that every day. I feel like, because we both weren't exposed to what that looked like until almost college. And, um, just trying to figure that out in our relationship and seeing so many unhealthy relationships, especially since so many of our friends are current and former foster youth. And so uh, we decided, or I decided to write on relationships, but then I saw this huge behemoth of a task to write this book. And I'm like, I can't do this by myself. And we do pretty much everything together. You know, we own a couple companies together and well, now we're married. And so I'm like, you know, let's do this together. And, um, and then it started off as a project of uh, let's get closer together before we get married, because we're both, both former foster youth. So we're like, you know what, we have a ton of trauma that we need to work through, make sure that we're unlearning and relearning and um, really being intentional on going into our marriage uh, because the divorce rate is so high for quote unquote normal families <laughs> and couples. So we're like, okay, let's do this together. And we didn't get a chance to actually start writing the book until we were emergency evacuated from South Africa in March. And while we were in an RV for two weeks, uh, that's when we really laid out the outline for this book. So if you want to talk about our goals for the book. Yeah, some of our goals for the book, um, as you read, you'll understand kind of our normal and the things that we dealt with in our childhood. Uh, some of our realities and this is a book really to challenge each and every individual i know they're within within the book writing process and promoting 
process, you always have a target market. And we do have somewhat of a target market, but we feel that this book is an identity book and it, it helps each individual kind of reflect on their past and their experiences of, okay, what were the influences of my family and my community? You know, you may not have been extremely traumatized like we were, but what are some of the small things and elements that have been placed on me, some of those expectations, some of those things that shape my identity that I didn't exactly choose and that is, is not exactly healthy for me. Mm. Looking at the other side of things and different perspectives of life and how can you improve and choose a pathway that is conducive for you in your future and also something that is helpful for those around you and not just you. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's awesome. And I love that it can totally be applied to anyone, absolutely. Um, yeah, so you guys had a pretty quick turnaround with this book. You know, some people take like 10 years to write a book or whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> so how was the process like within your relationship? Did it cause stress? Was it super fun and you were both super engaged? Like, was it both? I think it was really a way for us to get a lot closer before we got married. Even though we knew everything about each other, like everything in this book, there's not, I don't think there's one thing that we were surprised about or didn't know about each other. But it was it was going into more detail about it and, and really diving into what that, what happened, what it felt like. And uh, when we actually finished the first draft of our book, um, Justin had this idea to read the book out loud, but I read his parts out loud and I, and he reads my parts out loud. And that was a way for us to really get closer and have more compassion and empathy for each other. And there was a lot of ugly crying <laughs> in this process. And it was, it was really difficult. We were both on the phones with our counselors, having Zoom meetings with our counselors, because it brought up a lot of stuff. And we had to, you know, work through that still. It's a lifelong journey of healing. And we had to, you know, um, even continue to heal, heal through this journey. Um, but we could lean on each other through the process. And I think that actually made us a lot closer before we got married in August. Yeah, I think for me, just the, the entire process, um, you know, I love to write, but it's kind of like um, when you write about your life experiences, especially when you've been through a lot of the things that we've been through, it's kind of like <laughs> we've lived like two or three lives all in mm -hmm. one. It's like this portion of life was completely different in my teenage years, completely different than my young adult. Well, I'm still a young adult. kind of <laughs> <laughs> Completely different than when I was 16, 17 or 18 to now in college. It's like if you chop up our lives from four to five years, it's like every four to five years, it's like completely different. And it's just like, you look back and you say, wow, I, I can't believe I've been through this or I had these experiences. And mm -hmm. like when you write, it, it takes you like writing it out to really think about, wow, that was normal to me. Like I remember going through those things and like, you know, those situations were normal. And I can't, like being in those same situations as an adult, it would like blow my mind and I couldn't live like that. But as a child or as a teenager, it was acceptable and it was okay. And just reflecting on your life is just crazy in general, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially such a deep dive. And then, you know, in a book, you can only include so many portions uh, to, and so you have to say, okay, like this meant a lot to me, but did it mean enough? And does it bring across the point and all of that? So you have to have some like process of editing things out. Um, which, yeah, we had a phenomenal editor yeah, yeah. Who, who really worked through this process with us. And like my chapter, uh, it was desperate for love. Like I was like, damn, I must be really desperate. 
<laughs> because that one, it was like 30 pages all about like this abusive relationship that I went through and every single example was important to me, mm-hmm. you know, cause I went through it, but I had to kind of, I had to really step back and say to Justin and our editor, Leslie, like, I need you guys to make that final call of what's going to be included or not, because I can't, I can't separate myself enough from it. She was fighting a lot of stuff. I was fighting a lot of stuff. And I mean, some stuff got like, some stuff stayed in it, but at the same time, you have to remember that a typical memoir is 300 pages for one person. Mm -hmm. Right. And we both fit both of our stories into this to the best of our ability. So we obviously had to leave stuff out. Mm -hmm. And also another thing with the editing process was, (laughs) you know, we talked to our editor about our experiences and what we've gone through and we will mention certain details of our life experiences. Like, I don't think this is important, but what do you think about this? And she's like, wow, can't believe that happened. You need to put that in there. And again, it's crazy because, you know, the book is redefining normal. And so in our mind, a lot of things that happen to us is is still normal. And it's still, I wouldn't say acceptable, but it's still normal. Like we don't, we don't think twice about it. And um, when you mention certain things to someone who's outside of that normal, it's like, it will really blow their mind. And it's a big deal to them and something they want to know more about. But for us, it's like, eh, should we put that in there? I don't know. It's not that important. Yeah, we yeah. ran into that a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's some validation in that of like, okay, I need to like give myself a little bit more credit here. This is something mm-hmm. that, because we do, I think that we kind of naturally say like, well, it's not a big deal. I was resilient. You know, a lot of people have to deal with stuff. But when somebody yeah. like, no, this would blow somebody's mind. You're like, okay, like I could... I can give myself, you know, a hug or a pat on the back and be like, yeah, that was a big deal. I'm going to put that in the book. Yeah, exactly. There was definitely a lot of that yeah. <laughs> in the process. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So tell me how you guys met. So uh, we met in college um, during a uh, foster or at Western Michigan University. There's a program called the Cedar Scholars Program. And it's a program for foster youth and higher education. And the program, it has multiple different components where we met during a, a early, uh, a summer early uh, transition, transition, tr- transition we call set week, mm-hmm. which is a week over the summer where you kind of get used to the cohort, um, or familiar with your cohort, your, they give you a campus coach to help you navigate through college and transition into adulthood when it comes to budgeting and so many other aspects of a college student in adulthood. Um, they during the set week, they showed you around, showed you where your classes are, helped you get familiar with campus and everything. And that week, you know, we met and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was on the first day, on the first day of that week. Yeah. And we kind of just start talking uh, since then and kind of talking as friends for a few months and it just got more and more intense. And, you know, we just kind of sparked the relationship. Mm-hmm like actually like near the beginning of the semester but you missed out a huge part so i was a junior (laughs) and he was an incoming freshman yeah and so i was like oh he's just a baby like it just i was like this feels weird he's so young (laughs) yeah i I had prom like the the month before meeting yeah and i was going into my senior year (laughs) yeah and it's funny in college it so matters but like in the rest of the world like what is it two years difference or something yeah like now that we're both graduated it's like that doesn't mean anything (laughs) yeah (laughs) so okay I was reading your book and I um you know was understanding that you guys were part of a program for former foster youth and as you just described it you know really offered a lot of benefits as far as like helping you out making the transition maybe speaking to your you know unique challenges or your unique needs um but you did talk about this uh time when everybody had to like write down their trauma on an index card. Mm 
and they were anonymous, uh, but they were still read aloud. So tell me about that experience. Was it helpful to hear um, that other people had gone through the same things and that you weren't alone? Was it one of the first times that you had felt that way? Just tell me about that experience. Yeah, to me, it was it was a phenomenal way to begin this program because it, it really helped us to get to know each other more and to really try to break down those walls and be more vulnerable with each other. Because as foster youth, you just have so much shame that comes with that title. And, and even though it's, it's not earned, you know, it's, it's something that was placed on us um, by, by no fault of our own. And so by going into this room and writing everything on an index card and having having it be read out loud, it was just, I don't know, I can't, I'm trying to explain the feeling of, it, it was really that um, not being alone, having other people around you that have gone through similar things, and this can be your community. And that's why I absolutely love this program, and I also think that's why it's so successful. And they've proven that this summer early transition week where everybody in that cohort, in order for you to get the scholarship, you have to stay on campus for a week together as the cohort, as the incoming class, because they um, have proven that you are far more likely to be successful going through this program than if you don't. Um, because again, you're building that community. And, um, and it's really, it's, it's far more than that. It's, it's, you're building friendships, you're building um, accountability partners. You know, it's, there's so many levels to it uh, by just this, just during that week and that exercise alone was that was a perfect way to begin the program of like let's really break down these walls and show that we are resilient we're strong and we can get through it and we're, we're going to do it together and one of the things that i even mentioned in my section is that uh once once i, I was i came into college with a certain mindset as he read and uh once i really got to know more of my cohort and learn about their experiences i was less willing to think in that in that way and i feel like i was somewhat taking advantage at least trying to take advantage of other people because of that's that was my mindset coming into college and trying to mess with a bunch of girls and everything but that activity and that experience really helped me with um just being aware of people's experiences and once you are aware of people's experiences and what they've gone through it makes you kind of appreciate who they are and not mm. And hopefully for other people not take advantage of their weaknesses. And for me, it it, it just opened my eyes somewhat as a moment of realization of, okay, you're not just here just to be, you know, do stupid college stuff and party and drink and and all that. You're here for a specific purpose and you're not alone in this also. And, you know, appreciate what people have overcome. You know, when you interact with people, when you meet people, you know, if they react a certain way, you just think that, this is an isolated incident or that's just who they are, but you don't know the baggage and everything that they carry and what they've gone through and how that results into something else. And mm-hmm. I think that once you can understand what people have overcome, you're able to appreciate them more. And I think that's what that, uh, that activity really opened my eyes to is embracing who I am and, and uh, recognizing what I've gone through and figuring out that I have more to overcome because there are so many people who have gotten to this point of higher education, uh, just like me, who need to overcome their trauma and they're open and willing and honest to do it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So there's something though, like about, did you see, you know, cause what you just said was super um, uh, introspective and aware. 
but I can imagine that there's like any college student, there's a lot of people that aren't very introspective and aren't very aware, like, and, uh, you know, uh, college could be associated with drinking and high risk sex behavior and drugs and maybe a little bit of class, but you know, um, so did you feel like putting, um, a bunch of kids that were, that had a bunch of trauma background or were bringing that to their interactions with others. Did you feel like that could be a recipe for disaster or did that play out as far as like, now you're putting a bunch of people that might not have healthy dynamics and coping mechanisms and you're adding alcohol and you're adding partying into the mix. Like that would be one of my trepidations of a program like this. I mean, the thing is, is that the program is, it, it's not just you bringing a bunch of uh, students together who with these experiences, you have those campus coaches and staff members and people who are there who make those uh, counseling resources and other resources available to you on campus. And it's kind of that person to uh, be there for you as much as you need and, and provide you with the resources that you need. Because if you think about it, for a program, if you go to a university that's not there, um, <clears throat> That, that, that doesn't have a seat scholars program it's and you go to higher higher education setting it's so easy to you know get involved with drinking and smoking and make that an addiction and i feel like that is more of a, a recipe for disaster because you don't have a resource like the cedar scholars program and a program tailored towards you and your needs and when you just try to fit in like you had the normal life experiences mm -hmm. like you know you can some people can take a drink or two and relax and not do too much and handle that. And for but for foster youth who've had maybe generations of addiction in their family, they may they, they may not be able to do that. And if you try to fit in with that crowd and maybe you know the people who can maybe take a drink and, and you know just relax, you may not be able to fit in. You may do too much or you know and and just overcompensate. But for you know if there's a program available that is tailored to your needs and helping you and really specific about serving you and your needs and giving you the resources that are available, then I think that's very needed for foster youth. You know, we, we're not, it's, it's sad to say, but we're not the typical, we don't have the typical experiences. We, we don't have the everyday two parent household life experiences with a community around us. Cedars, programs like the Cedar Scouts program provides that community provides the, the role models and the adults and the mentors and so many other things that we need that we didn't grow up with. We, a lot of us may not have grown up with mentors or a community or a supportive family and they're able to provide that. And it's not just like, they're just here as like a, almost like a rehab type of thing, but they're here as like a, a, a source and, and, and just we can go in and talk to them. Sometimes I will go to the Cedar Scholars office and grab a few snacks say hey to everybody, hey, how's it going? It's not like I'm just coming in crying every single day mm -hmm. and all the time. It's, it's just family. It's just people who love you and always there. And that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's it. important to remember that with this program, you had to apply to be into it, right? So there is an opt-in aspect of it that you have, that's, that's sort of your way of advocating and saying, I need the support. I want to be a part of this community. And, and then it's in the hands now of the program to foster that community. And as he mentioned, it has that security of having, um, of having uh, the, like the campus coaches and things there, but also seniors in the program are there as like facilitators and like 
the like the hosts of of the event through the week and so i believe strongly in in representation and having people that are like you mm -hmm. in positions of quote-unquote power or um it, or being successful and so you get to see that individuals with your similar background have been successful and now they're coming back and supporting so there's a lot of lessons in that um and just in that structure alone and so honestly this program is the greatest thing <laughs> and you don't have to go through the program you can go, yeah, to, you can go to college Mich and not you can go to western michigan and not be in a seated college program if you want. yeah but you have a higher chance of failing then and and there's scholarship money available too that yeah. i don't hurt you know yeah <laughs> no that's awesome i love to hear about programs that, and resources that worked in the way that they intended to love that mm -hmm. okay so tell us about your early childhoods what brought you into care you want to go first or i'll go first go. um so i entered the foster care system at nine years old uh, my family dealt with a lot of substance abuse issues and um as you i don't know i don't know how far you are in the book i don't want to give too much away <laughs> no but, it's okay yeah, my, and the re and the listeners haven't read it so however you would talk to a, a lay audience yeah so i uh dealt with a lot of homelessness and there was a lot of drug addiction within my family and just living in communities with a lot of drug addiction, poverty, and so many components that it got to a point where, um, you know, we were living in an abandoned house for a while on the run from Child Protective Services with me, uh, my sister who was pregnant, a uh, few of my brothers um, who was also 14 years old and had a baby on the way, and um, my mom and my dad who just returned uh, after uh, my mom and my dad broke up for a while. And we were living in this abandoned house through the winter. And as you can imagine, winter in, in Michigan is pretty rough. And, uh, you know, just going through the struggles of being in the abandoned house. And then it, it got to a point where my mom released us into the foster care system. Mm. And, you know, that's that's basically how it was. But just going through a lot of struggles in my childhood of identity and eternalizing that trauma of living in communities filled with drugs and poverty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I entered foster care at 13, but before that, um, my biological mom died at six. Uh, she actually died from suicide, and I didn't find out until high school that that's actually how her mother died as well. Mm -hmm. And so if I would have known that that runs in my family, I definitely could have done a lot uh, in my own sense to, to kind of um, be proactive around that, but I'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> but uh, after she died, I went to live with my biological father who um, ended up going to prison when I was 13, when I entered foster care um, for uh, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse of me. And, um, and then I had to testify against him the next year, uh, my freshman year in high school. And so that, as you can imagine, was really difficult. And um, uh, so that's when I entered care and uh, I went through a lot of depression. I had, I was diagnosed with PTSD twice. Um, just a lot of issues that I had to kind of work through and, and work and get through. Um, but I really had some great teachers in high school that allowed me to eat lunch with them pretty much every day. I remember my junior and senior year, just constantly eating with them. Um, and during this time I lived with my aunt and uncle and I had to transfer schools and they actually kicked me out my junior year of high school and that's when i moved in with my aunt no or sorry with my foster parents who are now my adoptive parents so i always tell people that's literally the greatest thing that ever happened to me was being kicked out because i met my parents um who are the greatest people on earth <laughs> and you were at what age did you go live with them um uh, that wasn't until i was 17. 17. and you were in their home for a little while right 
Yeah, it was only six months until they moved, uh, and then I lived, and then their parents got licensed so I could stay in the same high school. So oh. I could stay in the same family and stay in the same high school, uh, which was amazing that they that they did that for me. Yeah, that's really cool. Are you still in contact with them today? Uh, I live with them right now. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're like, yes, um, hello. <laughs> I know, like her room is right there. So uh, when we got, as we mentioned before, when we got evacuated from South Africa, uh, we were kind of freaking out because we didn't know what we were going to do. We were supposed to be there for six months and um, and then get our own place and get a job and things like that. But, you know, pandemic happened and we're like, well, what do we do? And so I called my mom, uh, who's my adopted mom, and I, and I was crying. I was like, I don't know what do where do we go she's like come home like it was it was like it was if it was nothing and like just come home and so that's what we did mm-hmm. <laughs> we've been here ever since we got married in august and we came back um and so yeah <laughs> so you were placed at six at 17 um and then they adopted you yes okay. uh in december that's really cool so i was 26 when they adopted me so it's been about 10 years <laughs> that's so cool um yeah, I had just learned, like, from an, an adoption attorney that you could adopt at any age. I was, I thought that, like, you couldn't adopt after 18. I don't know why I made that assumption, but but she cleared that up, and I, that's so cool. So, yeah, so, I definitely looked into that. <laughs> it was yeah. a long process. Yeah, yeah, no, it's awesome. So, how do you feel, like, and either of you can answer this, or both of you, whenever, um, but how do you feel, like, trauma-shaped your view of the world and shaped uh, your identity in the world, like where you belonged or didn't belong? That is a big question. Yeah. Um, you can break that down. Uh, that's what we, you know, that's the basis of the book for the most part also. Yeah, I think um, <coughs> speci- very specific to my situation, especially as an African-American, it's like a lot of trauma uh, within Black communities is passed down because we, we feel that we are inferior and we subject ourselves to a lot of inferior ways of thinking, behaviors, and ideas. So because that culture and that identity is passed down for your racial group, we subject ourselves to certain things that most racial groups or human beings shouldn't be subjected to, and we're subjected to those things by society in general. Um, also think that uh, because, you know, it's so traumatizing living in poverty, you know, and, and going through some of the things we've been through that you feel like we said is is normal to uh, uh, accept what we've accepted and and we don't feel that we deserve certain things and I think that that happens a lot with traumatized youth, traumatized communities, uh, traumatized racial groups. We feel that we we don't deserve to have better in our lives, mm-hmm. so we accept what we have. We accept the poverty, we accept the violence and, and other things. And the way to cope with those things is, you know, the violence, the drugs, the alcohol, and what's nearby. Instead of, we feel like we don't even deserve, like like for, for a lot of African-American communities, we feel that counseling and therapy is a white thing or, um, you know, some healthy ways of even for a long time going to college was a white thing. Mm-hmm. And that's just, so deep in internalizing racism that we just feel like we're uh, inherently a lower class group of people. And that's kind of what society and trauma has told me about my life, but I had to kind of work through and it took seeing a lot of successful African-American men in my life and, and other people to really start to change those ideas. Because even as I tried and work harder in my life to move forward 
and, you know, having my family or community pull me back or just me failing in general, it, it was kind of a reminder that I needed to accept the inferior role in my life. But there were people around me that believed in me to say, hey, you can do more and we believe in you. So use those failures as an opportunity to do better. Nice. Yes, um, I love that answer. That was great. <laughs> um, I would say for me, um, what I learned so much in through my life was um, how do I how do I figure out what my identity is, what my purpose is, and what is that rooted in? And for so long, I was told that love hurts and that love is transactional, and that if I want to be loved, I have to give up a piece of myself to the men around me. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that a lot in, in the book, um, in my pers- in my perspective, and, and the damage that that did to me, and how difficult it was to get into a healthy relationship um, with those uh, uh, predispositions and the, um, the different mindsets, the, the limitations that I place upon myself, but also, um, I think the key word there is that I place upon myself like mm-hmm. that, you know, society and our families and things can do everything in its power to hold you back. But at the end of the day, it's my decision if I'm going to feed into that and accept that as my own. And so for myself, I had to really, um, dig deep and be intentional on who am I and what do I want to leave in this world? What, uh, what is my legacy? Who am I to my core? And, and, you know, what is the impact that I want to make? And so I had to really decide that for myself, um, uh, separate from my family and their ideals and, um, who they are really, I had to, I had to kind of set out on my own path. And one of the reasons why we, had the book in alternating narratives is because we wanted people to see that we had to go through individual journeys of healing and self-discovery before we could come together and have a relationship because far too often people get into a relationship assuming that their partner is going to heal them save them um be their be their everything but that's not possible there's no human that could do that for me and also i have to do my healing on my own. He can't heal me. He can't provide me happiness. I have to do that for myself. And we come together to, to bring joy to each other, um, and help each other through situations. And we've had that conversation where, uh, I was bugging him to go to counseling and he was like, uh, no, I have you. And I was like, no, (laughs) I'm not equipped to support you in the way that you need it. I can be your partner, but I'm not certified or trained for that. So you need to find somebody that is. And once I reframed it as that's not fair for you to do that, and it wouldn't be fair for me to do that as as well. That's why I go to counseling. And once I reframed that, um, he, that's when he started to seek out a counselor and he's been going ever since. So, um, there's just definitely a lot of personal accountability, uh, through our journey with trauma, um, and personal healing and perseverance, perseverance that had to happen. I love that. I love those answers. Um, so I feel like when we talk about coping mechanisms or defense mechanisms, although, um, I don't love the word defense mechanisms, but we, when we talk about that, um, people tend to get defensive of them because it sounds like something that's wrong with you. You know, oh, that's one of your coping mechanisms. That's one of your defense mechanisms. Um, and rather than thinking, well, no, you actually built this really cool thing that would protect you against things that you needed protection against. And then at some point that thing kind of took over and doesn't serve you anymore. 
you can actually start to mm -hmm. let it go now because you don't need the protection or you don't need that coping mm -hmm. skill because the dynamic's not there anymore. And mm -hmm. we tend to just perpetuate whatever we've learned um, that needed that we needed to build in the beginning. So in what ways have you seen your coping mechanisms or your defense mechanisms or whatever you've had to build, build to protect you from traumatic things that were happening? What ways have you seen them manifest in your life where you go, this isn't serving me anymore? Mm -hmm. And we, we talk about this a lot in the way of the things that served you to get through survival isn't the things that's going to take you to where you need to be. Um, and you have to really work through that. And some of those can be strengths, you know, um, like for me, information and planning are, are things that I love and that gives me comfort. Um, but in the way that it's my strength, it can also be a weakness. And so you have to see the flip side of that is all strengths do have its weaknesses, depending on the, um, the degree of it. And so for myself, like in high school, I always tell this about, um, I was an extreme planner. I plan my day down to the second. And if I left my planner at home, I would have a panic attack. And I'm like, I gotta go home. I can't function for us today. I don't know what I'm doing. And, um, and so just having that up, up until I would say, um, right about the time where I transferred to universities, uh, I used to go to the University of Michigan Flint, and I remember having this mass meltdown at work uh, because I wasn't gonna graduate on time. And I just thought I was a complete failure, that I'm not ever gonna graduate now, that uh, other people are leaving me and, and leaving me behind. It was just, it was this extreme feeling. And I just had this whole meltdown. I had to go home, and uh, my, I was a teller, my boss had to count me out, and I had to go home. And I had a couple of those, but, and it was always around the planning sense of not doing things on time, not following other people's schedule, uh, and, and not living up to those things. And once I really let that go and, and learn how to be a little bit more flexible, and I think that my, my mom, uh, my after mom, she really helped me with that because I remember when I first moved in and plans are changed, she was like, oh, we'll figure it out. And I'm like, <laughs> who does that like <laughs> like they freaked me out that she was just the most I don't know uh relaxed person I've ever met and so I adopted a lot of that because I could see her demeanor when when change happens when things come up and just how she handles it with grace and and um with with uh with courage in a lot of ways and and so I'm like okay I'm watching her and so that taught me a lot and, and then, um, like when I studied abroad, I would plan every single day, you know, down to the minute of what am I doing or when I travel on vacation, whatever. And I would make everybody around me miserable because I am planning everything to the second and not allowing life to happen. You know, the beautiful parts of, um, things that come up at the last minute or things that you don't expect. And so now like when we travel or study abroad, like I don't plan anything, like I'll plan, I'll plan uh, the country and like where we're going, but there's been times where we don't even plan where we're sleeping that night because I'm like, we'll figure it out. You know, we'll figure it out. Day of. I'm like, wow, the growth, like the, that is so much growth for me because that would give me a panic attack a couple years ago, you know, and, and some of our favorite parts of our journeys together have been those days that aren't planned and allowing ourselves to just be and live in the moment. Um, so that's definitely one of the things that I learned from uh, one of my coping mechanisms. And did you feel like that came on, like when did that planning um, come online, um, you know, so that you could have control of your day or did change mean really bad things to you? Like, do you know? Yeah. 
it gave me structure. So um, planning my days out gave me structure that I needed that I didn't feel was happening around me. It just always felt like chaos around me. And so that gave me stability and it was something that I could control. And so if something came up, obviously that I couldn't control, then it freaked me out. And I was like, I don't know what the heck to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but things happen and life happens. Like um, last week, my cousin passed away and it was extremely unexpected. And it's like, like it hurt, but at the same time, life happens. And I, I can't, um, I don't know, I can't break down and, and uh, shut down in the way that I used to. Now I'm like, you got to push through it. Life happens, you know, mm-hmm. and there's uh, probably a lot of that is numbing from, I've been to so many funerals and things have, you know, happened. Um, well, with that, you still want to take time. To, I'll take, you know, you know, there's time there, but at the same time, it's still like, take time to process and everything. You don't yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, things come up, things happen. This, this is life. This is what happens. We all live and die. You know, we all have transitions. We all have things that happen to us. Um, and, and we got to have perseverance to push through it. Um, cause the life or world keeps spinning. So, you know, I think, uh, one of the biggest things for my ways of coping is just uh, growing up, I had like a skewed, uh, view of masculinity and manhood mm-hmm. and what that meant. And I had to kind of deal with that eventually. And uh, especially when you, I came across Alexis and I started to see how that skewed view of masculinity started to affect our relationship and affect her. And I, I started to, I had to dig deep in myself and figure out how can I improve and do better? And what does true uh, masculinity or manhood mean in my life? And what does it mean to, to move forward? And with that, as an adult, so. Uh, you know, like I talk about early on in the book, coming into college, I thought that, and I'll talk about this later on in the book as well, like this, this specific topic of just mm-hmm. how, you know, being a man to me, a lot of times meant um, just sleeping with a bunch of women. And that's what it meant. And that was my idea of manhood based on how I grew up and, and what, mm-hmm. what I thought it meant and, and how other men around me expressed that a lot of times as a child. and in order for me to, to prove myself, in order for me to fit in, in order for me to, 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 you know, make it seem like I am one and I have purpose and I'm worthy, you know, that doing that make me feel worthy. You know, the more people you sleep with make you feel worthy and loved and wanted and everything. But if no one was around me or if nobody wanted me, then I didn't feel worthy. You know, I had to really deal with the fact that, you know, me being alone, even within a relationship, you know, she's going to, we've had months apart where we had to, you know, we were in a relationship, but she like, you know, I'm going in, a, I'm in doing an internship or a study abroad in a different country or state or whatever. And um, I had to deal with myself and dig deep and feel like, you know, I'm cool with being alone. I'm okay with that. I don't need to uh, have people around me or someone to validate me because I know uh, spiritually I'm grounded and God has validated me. I validated myself and I know who I am and I'm content with who I am and I'm happy. And I don't need anyone's emotions or actions or something else that someone else is doing to validate who I am. So I had to kind of reshape my view of masculinity and how I cope with the lack of uh, men and true examples around me growing up and reshape how I express my masculinity and manhood as an adult. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's... That's deep. I feel like too, and I hear this often, um, that coping mechanisms can show up in healthy or socially acceptable 
um, forms that are actually perpetuated and we like surround ourselves with people that will perpetuate our the dynamics mm -hmm. that we want to perpetuate so somebody could look at Alexis and be like oh my gosh she's so organized she's the one that you would want handling all of your schedules and like and and she would get some sort of you know uh, affirmation or validation from that like yes this is a good thing and I keep everything together and I keep every, everything in control but it's this huge weight and it's really unhealthy but it seems like a lot of the coping mechanisms we choose they're not just like the typical like oh out of control drugs uh you know anger management getting locked up you know all of these super uh typical ones there's actually a lot that actually look like you're super productive or if it is sleeping around for men in this society that's actually cool and that's what's yeah. going to get you you know included in things and that's what's going to get you all the you know fist bumps and stuff so it can be even more difficult to work through some of this stuff when nobody's saying what you're doing is off and people mm -hmm. are even saying like dude you're a rock star yeah. you have to be like well it's not good for me which is like a whole nother level yeah and i talk about that a lot in the book of like my academic success as being one of my coping mechanisms um specifically for education because that was one thing that couldn't be taken away from me and so i excelled at that but but um but just how much validation i was looking for in that um and no matter how many awards or scholarships that i got how between classes i was still crying and and depressed and nobody knew these things about me um, so I, I do talk about that a lot in the book too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important. Um, and I think, you know, we talked to a lot of the Stable Moments program is a mentorship program, which I love to hear that you guys, it sounds like you guys had good mentors in your life. There were times that you had mentors that said like, no, you got to push through or you're settling, you know, for less than you deserve. And um, so, you know, we're a big proponent of mentorship. But um, I wonder if people with big trauma have more of an opportunity. Like if you're carrying around what you know or others have labeled as baggage, mm -hmm. then you're like, okay, I've got to deal with this and probably have already been hooked up with counseling in some shape or form and probably already know something about, you know, a lot of mm -hmm. foster kids know more therapeutic clinical language than any typical person, right? They know all mm -hmm. this like, Oh, these are my coping mechanisms, and these are this is how I um, count to five and punch my pillow and all of these things before you get to like five minutes into a conversation with them. More self-aware, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so do you feel like people that have um, big trauma are in a better position to do this work that I really feel everybody needs to do, which is kind of analyzing how you were brought up, what you brought online when, like when you needed to develop. The person you were why like the relationships that your parents or the adults in your life modeled for you and then try to understand try to pull that apart and understand what is my real identity and who do i want to bring forward do you think that um people with trauma are at a better place to do that uh i would say yes and no because uh, i mean society we just read a book on this i forget the name of the book um about people mainly focusing on the bottom of society and people with the most who are the most in poverty or, or or with the most trauma and that's like a main focus for a lot of society and, and the middle uh, people and people in the middle are kind of left out so to speak and um 
So yeah, there is a specific focus on people who are suffering the most and going through the most hardships. But at the same time, a lot of those people have the, the deepest amount of trauma and have to go through the most work to kind of undo the generations. Because the thing is, a lot of the, a lot of the trauma they're expressing is not just one generation of trauma. Like for me, like she said, there's been two generations of suicide in her family for her mom. And for me, there's been two to three generations of domestic violence on my dad's side and two generations of drug abuse on my side. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, we, we have to carry those burdens of trauma on us. And we're like the first in our family to, to kind of overcome. And even though, yeah, there is more resources and things available for us, as opposed to someone who doesn't have the big trauma, like you referred to, I think that it's, it's, it's harder for us because we don't even have access to counseling or certain, certain resources or certain things that are just not available to us. Like for a lot of people in black communities, we don't even think about, you know, how this is affecting us, what, what we're dealing with and so many other things. And even though some people with trauma that may not be as big, doesn't, don't, don't really think about it as well. I mean, they may have the the financial resources or other things that will allow them to uh, get access to those things. But I think like a book like this, where that we've written, is something that each and forces each and every individual to reflect on. And I think if us as a society, we can force each individual to kind of reflect on the things that they've been through and what shapes their identity and their mindset and how their actions affect other people. I think if we can get in that mindset and force whether you going through big trauma, little trauma, whatever type of trauma you've been through, wherever you fall on the spectrum of trauma, you know, if each and every individual and each and every community as a whole, not just each individual, but community and family can reflect on how am I influencing my kid and is the is the culture that I'm structuring for the generations after me, am I creating a, a culture that is is successful, that puts them on a path of success, or am I putting them on a path of failure with the culture and identity and things that uh, we practice on a day-to-day basis? Am I setting them on a path of success or failure? And once each and every person and family and community can really do that, then we can all as a society work towards undoing our trauma no matter where you fall on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that. And, you know, I was missing kind of the, uh, the people that are still in survival, right? Because you're not going to stop and say, how are these survival mechanisms not helping? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're still in survival, you're still in survival. So you need mm-hmm. to, your needs need to be met before you could even, you know, slow down and be able to be retrospective and, or introspective. Mm-hmm. So, you said I real I love the whole like are you setting your up your kids for success are you setting up your community for success are you what are you doing to create the path so that we're not perpetuating um generational poverty generational abuse addiction so how can the community be more cuz I think that a lot of people can go like well yeah I'm a good parent or like yeah my kid I'm setting my kids up for success but how can the community do more in making sure the community is set up for success and making sure that there's opportunities that everyone, you know, that we can give more than just our nuclear, our little nucleus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
now more than ever, we're, we're so individualistic where we just care about ourselves and our, in our home, not necessarily our neighbor and those across the street, especially those across town and let alone, especially across the world. So, um, it's, it's being able to, to think about yourself beyond just you and, um, and think about who are you in a, in a global world, you're a global citizen, you, everything that you do impacts somebody else, potentially on the other side of the world. And so remembering that, knowing that, um, so that, that alone can be a little daunting because it's like, what can I do as one person? But we all have an individual duty to give back and to serve other people. And so no matter where you are in life, no matter what you're doing, you have the potential to mentor other people. We all have skills and abilities that we can pass on to others. We can be a professional mentor, a personal mentor, um, help people with just accountability, uh, working through whatever they're going through, or just providing career advice. Um, and so we all have the, the capacity to do that. And it's, and it's leaning into that, even when you don't feel that you have the strength or you have um, anything more to give, we all still have something else to give. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I, that I believe. I think just with that is also, you know, reflect on who you are as an individual. Of course, before you help anyone else, you got to reflect on who you are and how you can get better as an individual, your character, and what are the foundational things that make you and and what 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 are the components of the foundation that, that structures who you are and what you believe. Just keep reevaluating that and, and keep making that a solid foundation. Once you have your foundation, you, you stand on that, you stand firm on that. And then you kind of have to, like she said, look at mentoring and then look at your family, look at the, the culture and foundation of your family, and then just go keep stretching beyond that, like your individual, then your family, then your community. And community is really, you know, we don't actually have a lot of communities in the U.S. You have a bunch of neighborhoods or individuals or family households. A community is the people who come together, who can identify a, a pathway that they want to go and certain principles and ideas that they stick to and you and some things that combine them together as a group of people. And once we form more communities, then we can have influence on a state level, then the national level. And then once we have that influence and identity of who we are as a state or as a nation, then we can start to impact the globe. But it really starts with the individual and the family and, and it's huge on individual mm -hmm. and family because so many of those aspects in our society and within our neighborhoods have been corrupted of identifying who we are and how we, what we think of ourselves and subjecting ourselves to lower standards that we should be. And then that goes to subjecting your family to lower standards than they, they should be subjected to. And then you start to create more families with broken, of brokenness, of uh, missing I, or, or not as good of identity of what you think about yourself and bad foundational pieces of who they are. And then you have a, a individual and in a community and in a family that is standing on broken and brokenness and emptiness and abuse and foundational pieces that are not healthy. So just focus on yourself, but then just work on building better families and building better communities and try to figure out ways of organizing whether that is through church or, uh, if you're a religious person, how can you organize that way? Or just different ideas and ways for communities to organize and push initiatives forward and push things forward. And they see how you can expand from there. Mm -hmm. I really love the, the start with yourself. 
Um, because I feel like it's really, really easy for us to say like, okay, we're going to go help others and we're going to do all this external stuff. Uh, but I, a while ago realized like I, I train mentors to mentor kids and I always did that by training them about tra trauma and how we respond appropriately and how we're there for them and how we act with these kids. And then I really started working in like, where, where are you at and what are you bringing to the table and what, cause like we bring ourselves to everything, right? And we bring our dynamics to everything and whether we like it or not, parts of our parents are coming through to our kids or the kids we mentor or mm -hmm. our community. Um, and it doesn't mean it's good or bad, but to be aware of that is really, you can't ask somebody else to do their work if you're not going to do your work. So absolutely, I really, really, really love that. And doing the work isn't easy and it's not clear and it's not A to B. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. So I love this so much. Where can we follow you? Where can we get your book? How can we support your work? Yes. I want to bring it up real quick so yes. you can see it. So um, Here's Yay. the book and it's available at re-definingnormal.com and it's also available on Amazon. So it's called Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness, and Love. Get a little closer so you can see it. Uh, this is our baby, everything. Uh, we poured our heart and souls into yeah, this. This is our first baby, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we poured everything into this book and we really hope to inspire other people to deal with what they need to heal from the past so that they can break those generational patterns and move forward collectively. And so that's what we yeah. really care about. Um, see what you need to work on as an individual before entering a relationship and not putting that trauma on someone else. Exactly. Um, and so if you have any questions or anything, you can reach out to us at info at re-definingnormal.com. We're available for speaking engagements, anything people need um, that we can do to support. So I love it. Well, I will um, link to that uh, website. I'll link to any of your socials that you guys have in the show notes um, so that everybody can follow you. You guys get the book. It's a super easy read and you feel like you know them really well. Like you're like, oh, I could sit down and have coffee and be friends with these people. <laughs> like you have a really conversational writing style, which I personally uh, really appreciate. Thank you so much. This has been enlightening. I love having former foster youth on and thanks for, you know, broadening our perspective and helping us understand more what we can do. I love the, you know, work on yourself message. Thank you so thank much. You we so really much. appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having, having us on here. We appreciate everything. Yes. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. You too. You too. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Y'all, how great were they? I just loved talking to them. I know that they made me feel super comfortable about asking a bunch of questions. And I feel like it's so important that we have these conversations where we're able to ask questions and not feel judged or weird about asking them and just come back with a real answer. I just love that. I love that these guys found each other and that they created this body of work that helps the rest of the community not only understand their experience, understand the experience of foster youth, but understand how they too can have healthy relationships. You might have understood or, or, or heard that they have businesses together, that they're both business owners. Uh, and I just wanted to let you know what they do for those businesses. So together they've created Rose, which is Rising Over Societal Expectations, which is an empowerment group. 
It's a company structured to close the information gap for young adults. And they've also have the business of the scholarship expert where they support students to graduate debt free while obtaining the skills needed to be successful. So all of their work is about helping people rise above and break down barriers. Make sure to grab their book, Redefining Normal. You can grab it on Amazon and on their website, which I'll link in the show notes. Support them and support yourself and your healthy relationships in your own lives. What a great episode to have to round out our 2020 season, our holiday season. That is right. I am taking two weeks off. We're going to be off for Christmas and New Year's. So you guys rest up, pat yourselves on the back for making it through 2020. And I will see you guys in 2021. Boy, does it feel so good to say that.